They may not have been using your name. They may not have uh, specifically said your name uh, specifically. But maybe all of the different things that they're saying, all of the facts of the story, all of them are leaning towards you. Perhaps this happens more to me than it does you, but this happens to all of us. Maybe you felt this way during a lesson. Well, the preacher is talking about me today. Well, by the way, if you feel that way, they might have a problem, right? It's not the case that we're talking about you specifically or thinking about you specifically with the lessons that we give, the points that we make. Perhaps it just applies to you, right? Perhaps this just applies to your life. Or maybe it's a Facebook post or an Instagram post or a Twitter post post or something on social media where someone talks about you without actually using your name. Has that ever happened to you before? Jensie uh, was telling me a story one time where a guy uh, was mad at her about not letting her use her homework uh, for class in high school. The guy wound up going on to win valedictorian. She won salutatorian, right? But that night, she noticed on Twitter, the guy, he, 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 he said basically the story and said everything but her name. And so the next day in class, Jensie just very sassy remarks. I'm going to get in trouble for this. But remarks to the guy in the middle of class, hey, why don't you just at me next time, right? Why, why, why don't you just say my name on the Twitter post, right? Why don't you just... Call me out if you're mad at me about something. Why don't you just use my name, right? How many times do we experience these moments where we feel like someone is talking about us but not necessarily using our name? They know who they're talking about. You know who they're talking about, but everyone else is kind of left in the dark. You know, when we do this to one another, when humans do this to one another, it's usually rooted in some form of, of pain or anger or inward strife toward another person. When we do this, we aren't really trying to help the other person. Uh, we aren't trying to uh, change their heart or, or, or change their attitude about something for the better. We're, instead, we're really just trying to give them guilt to bring them guilt or to bring them some type of pain if we have the justification or sometimes if we don't have the justification. Because that's just how we communicate sometimes. And whether it is right or wrong, and usually it is wrong or at least with some bad intent, regardless of which one it is, we get the message sent that way. I want you to hold on to that thought for a moment. And as we do that, I want to talk about what we're going to be studying and looking at the next three weeks on Sunday nights. Tonight we're starting a, a new very short series in the month of August. Our last week of August is going to be Harvest Weekend and the other weeks of August we're going to be looking at some of the parables of Jesus. As the roundtable, we have roundtable series and we have roundtable sermons. This is one of the roundtable sermon series that we're going to have and it's going to be on the parables of Jesus and perhaps not the parables that we automatically go to in our minds when we think about the parables of Jesus. Perhaps not the most evident, the most uh, obvious, the, the most talked about or most uh, well-known parables we're going to be looking at perhaps some of the more less known parables. And if you've been studying the Bible long, or, or if you've been a part of the church any amount of time, it's probable that you know what the word parable means. It's very probable that most of the people in this room tonight know what it means to teach a parable. They know what it means to Jesus that he preached parables. But perhaps there's someone listening tonight online, or someone in here tonight, who has lived in the church their whole life and have just never asked the question, what does that mean? You know, what, what, what does the word parable mean? And perhaps this one of those church words that 
Uh, we've talked about lately that we only use in the context of, of spiritual things. We don't use this word in, in everyday life, and so perhaps you don't have a full grasp on what it means. And so all these years when we were sitting up here talking about parables, 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 you're like, what's going on? Well, tonight we're going to talk about, in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the parables of Jesus. And so if you don't know what the word parable means, the word parable, it comes from the Greek parabole, which means to throw aside or to cast alongside of. That's the literal translation. And basically what you need to know about that is it's basically Jesus' way of throwing alongside or, or casting alongside an illustration to fit into the overall theme of his overall lesson. Right? It's just, it's just a throw alongside of message to go over and into the rest of the, of the full, of, of the whole of his lesson. Or perhaps you're like me and, and you have heard this your whole life, that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? That's the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about the definition of parable because that's just what I was taught growing up. A parable is an earthly story with, an he, with a heavenly meaning, meaning... Uh, basically, it's, it's Jesus' way, it's, it's a teacher's way of telling a story or an illustration that we'll understand. Bringing it down to earth and, and, and down to a human's understanding and telling this story that we can relate to so that later on in the story you can drop a much bigger and much greater purpose. And that's exactly what Jesus does throughout all of his parables, is he does that exactly. He takes a point, he makes an illustration that is so easily understood by his audience that he has their complete attention. So when he has that attention, when he, has their, uh, when he is relating to them, he is able to then talk to them about spiritual things. Perhaps it's a lesson for all of us who communicate God's word that we have to relate to the people that are listening to us. If we're just sitting up here talking a different language, we're doing no good, right? We have to relate to the audience. That's exactly what Jesus did. Paul would say, become all things to all men. Jesus was the greatest at that. Because the parable, the, the, the form of parables, was Jesus' number one way of relating to his audience throughout the gospel. He would tell them this story that they could visualize, that they maybe have even lived themselves, and then expose the greater spiritual meaning by the end of that parable. Some of Jesus' parables were incredibly easy to understand. Even for us today, we look back at them, we read them, and it's very evident for us to understand. It's very obvious for them at the original audience to understand what Jesus was saying. However, some of the parables were difficult for the original audience to understand. Some of the parables were so difficult that they even had to ask, the disciples had to ask, Lord, what did this mean, right? And Jesus would have to explain the parable to them. You can see that all throughout the Gospels. But regardless of, of whether it is incredibly easy to understand or kind of difficult to understand, we're going to take the time to study these parables over the next few weeks these earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And when we examine them and try to put them into context, especially these parables that we may not have studied much before, that's when we're hopefully going to find the most impactful and, and the most challenging lessons because we haven't necessarily thought about it before that way. At least that's what we hope this series will do as we go throughout the month of August. Because Jesus is the master teacher. There, there is no one who, ha, who has ever been a greater teacher than Jesus Christ. There has never been a greater preacher. There has never been a greater communicator of the gospel, of the word. Why? Because he is the word. He is the good news that the gospel is. And so it's our time, it's, it's time for us to look at the master teacher. To look at his lessons, his parables, and learn from them. Back to the way we started our lesson tonight, hearing someone or, or, or thinking that someone is talking about us, but not necessarily using our name. 
You know, it's hard for us when we look at the parables not to think that Jesus is doing that exact same thing sometimes. Especially when he's talking among the Pharisees, among the chief priests, among the, the Jews who had rejected him, who would not listen to him. It's hard for us not to think that Jesus is sitting there talking about them without necessarily using their names. And the reason it's hard for us not to think he's doing that is because he is doing that, right? Jesus is time and time again, over and over again, talking about the very people that, he, that are listening to him. But when we were talking about it earlier, we said when humans do that, when Jesus was human, but when we do that, we often don't have the right intentions, do we? When we do that, we're not trying to change that person or, or make that person better. We're not trying to, to help them in some way. What we're trying to do instead is perhaps even hurt them. Perhaps gossip about them or perhaps bring them down and peg or two, we might say. But that's not the case with Jesus. Every time Jesus taught a parable, he was trying to seek and to save that which was lost. It just so happens that the people he was speaking to did not believe they were lost. Over and over again throughout the scriptures, when he's talking to the Pharisees, when he's talking to uh, the Sanhedrin, when he's talking to the religious leaders of the day, they didn't believe they were lost. But he still s sought after them to save their souls. And so that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. And it's no different in our parable tonight in Matthew chapter 21, if you'll go ahead and be turning there, to Matthew chapter 21, where we're going to be studying our first parable in this series, The Wicked Vine Dressers. You know, the first thing we have to do before we get into the parable, the first point number one, we have to look at the parameters. We have to look at the parameters around the parable to understand what the parable really means. Because sometimes we find parables throughout the Gospels that, as we said earlier, don't get taught as much as the others do. Part of this is because these parables are connected or on the same couple of pages as some huge event, right? On the other side of the page, there's this huge event that we always go to. Many lessons are on, many articles are on, many different Bible classes are on. And so this parable kind of gets thrown to the side, right? This, this parable might get lost in all of the things going on with the other things going on in the text when it comes to how we preach and teach. Part of that is just how this goes. When we read the Bible, when we study the Bible, we simply go to the bigger stories, to the most headline news, right? Part of the reason we simply don't read some of these parables or talk about them is because they're a little bit difficult to understand with our 21st century glasses on, right? It's hard for us to understand because he was making an earthly story with a heavenly meeting to people 2,000 years ago, those stories might not really make sense to us in our century today. But tonight, as we look at our parable, we have to establish the parameter of what is going on before and a little bit after our text to fully understand what Jesus is trying to extend to this audience. And when we look at Matthew chapter 21, I asked you to turn there, you, you, you immediately realize how much is going on in this chapter. How, how, how many huge events in the life of Jesus happened in this one chapter? If you'll just look at chapter 21, you see at the heading is the triumphal entry. At the beginning of chapter 21, we see the triumphal entry. Jesus entering into Jerusalem triumphant with all of the multitudes exalting his name. If we know that chapter 21 is starting out with a triumphal entry, what do we automatically know about this parable? Well, we know that this was towards the end of his life. When Jesus is saying whatever he's going to say in our parable tonight, we know that he only has less than a week left to live. And so that brings an even heavier weight to the things that Jesus is saying because whatever Jesus says in this parable tonight we know this was part of the last lessons he could give 
through all the multitudes. This is part of the last lessons that he could teach his disciples. This is one of the last times, one of the last chances for those Pharisees and chief priests to change their heart. Because as we said, a less than a week later, he would be crucified for our sins. So that tells us a little bit about the parameter that this is towards the end. Towards the end of his life. And it brings that incredible weight to it. But when you look at chapter 21, you see in verse 9, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! This is how Jesus enters Jerusalem. With the multitudes, with the thousands, exalting his name, laying palm leaves down before him as he rides into Jerusalem. All of the fanfare, right? And then after that, immediately after that, we see Jesus cleansing the temple. He goes from this great triumphal entry to whipping people, flipping tables, telling them to get out of his father's house. Do not make my father's house a den of thieves. He is turning over the money changers' tables, and he's, he's wreaking havoc on the temple. And all the more, the more he does, the more the people exclaim, his greatness. Right after he flips the tables, it says that he healed all of the blind and lame. Look at what it says in verse 14. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. It says that he healed all of the blind and all of the lame in the temple. And so as we see this chapter 21, more and more events take place, more and more fans are coming to watch Jesus, and more and more do they exclaim, Hosanna in the highest. Look at verse 15, they say it again. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And so we see that this is the context, the parameters of our parable tonight. He goes and he rests a night, it says, in the next few verses. Comes back the next day, he tells a fig tree to die. What does the fig tree do? It withers right then and there. I mean, this, this chapter, multiple things are happening over and over throughout the chapter to show Jesus Christ and his power how he is the son of David, how he is the son of God. And finally, after all of that, after the triumphal entry, after uh, the wonderful miracles he did, healing the blind and the lame, after flipping the tables in the temple, after telling a fig tree to die, and it did, verse 23, the Pharisees have had enough. In verse 23 it says, Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So the chief priests and the elders of the people, they are fed up with Jesus. They obviously cannot question the miracles he is performing. They cannot question that these people were blind, they were lame, and now they're not. After you look at verse 23 and following, you can see that they can't not refute the things that he taught. They can't refute him. They can't go against the logic that he had when, they ask about, when he asked about John's baptism. They simply do not know what to say. And so Jesus tries to get them to answer their own question. Jesus is not going to answer this question for them. He's not going to say, I get the authority from God alone and, and I am the authority. He's going to try to get them to answer their own question. And so he asked them, Why, what do you think? How do you think I get this authority? Basically is what he's asking with this text tonight. But they are simply too prideful to tell the truth. They're simply too prideful to say what the truth is, or maybe they've been blinded to the fact that they don't know what the authority is from, 
But it's pretty obvious if someone is healing the blind, if someone's fulfilling Scripture in front of your eyes, time and time again, if someone is entering into Jerusalem on a cult, just like the prophecy says, if someone is doing all of the things that the Messiah was supposed to do, it's pretty obvious that they know by what authority he was there. But even though he doesn't necessarily straight up give them the answer of how he got this authority, he does go on to give a series of parables to explain by what authority he was doing these things. He doesn't necessarily go straight out and tell them up front like we kind of always want it, right? We always want, I want three points. I want them all to end with I-O-N. That way I can write it in my notebook and it'll be great. Jesus doesn't automatically do that. Jesus doesn't just lay it out like that. He doesn't give them a spoon to eat out of. He gives them a parable to learn from. A parable that would mean something. A parable that would stick in their minds for perhaps the rest of their lives. And that's exactly what he does in the following verses. It is important that we understand the parameters surrounding this parable because what takes place over the next two or three chapters of the book of Matthew is in response to the chief priests and elders asking, by what authority have you done these things? The triumphal entry has just taken place. Jesus has been uh, drawing thousands of followers through his teaching and through his miracles. And the Pharisees, the chief priests, they don't like it. And so Jesus is going to explain it to them with verse 33 and following. It says, Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Let's stop right there. So here within the very first verse of the parable of this earthly story with a heavenly meaning, we see Jesus is setting right the characters of the story. He's setting the plot of the story, of this earthly story. A story that they could all relate to. Hey, here's this landowner. He has this land. He establishes this vineyard. All of them understand exactly what that means. And so here have we have this landowner. And this landowner does all of this work to prepare this vineyard. Does all of the work in the forefront to prepare this vineyard for some vine dressers. What does it say he does to the vineyard? It says that the landowner, first of all, he planted a vineyard. He dug a wine press in it. He built a tower for it. And then it says he leased it to some vine dressers. Who are vine dressers? Perhaps you don't know what that means. Perhaps you don't know what a vine dresser is or does. Let's just look at it as someone who takes care of the vineyard. Let's look at it as someone who cultivates the crop, who makes sure that the vines are growing healthy and, and maintains the vineyard. And basically, the landowner then gives, metaphorically, the keys to this, these vine dressers. He gives them all, all, all of the uh, control over it, and he says he went into a far country. So he goes away for a while. And the text continues in verse 34. It says, Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. Let's stop there. The text says it was vintage time. What does that mean? Well, it means that it was time for the fruit to be reaped. It was time for the growth to be gathered. It was time for the vineyard to fulfill its purpose. It was time for all of these grapes or whatever the vines were growing to be picked, to be collected, to be used for some purpose. It was vintage time. It was time for this vineyard to fulfill its purpose. And so the landowner sends servants to the vine dressers. To reap the growth. Verse 35. And the vine dressers took his servants. They beat one. They killed one. And stoned another. 
Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they, didn't, they, did, and they did likewise to them. Let's stop there. So we have these vine dressers who have been put in charge of this vineyard. They have been cultivating it. They have been taking care of it. They have been maintaining it. They have been maintaining this landowner's crop. And when it was time for vintage time, it was time to gather the fruit from it. They did not want the crop to be taken away from them. It was simply time for the vineyard to fulfill its purpose. The whole reason it was planted, the whole reason it it, it was existing was to give fruit to the landowner. You know, it's kind of like parents at the time that their children go off to college, right? You've been preparing your your child for this moment. You've been raising your child for this moment. You've been preparing them and and teaching them and, and disciplining them and getting them prepared for this moment. But when the moment comes, if you're like Allison Hogan, it's a little difficult, right, to let go. It's a little difficult to say, all right, I'll just step back here. I'll just step back and I'll let you live your life. It's a little bit difficult for some people. Some people it's not. Some people you're like, bye, you're right. Get out, right? Um, so it's a little bit difficult for some people to let go of their child, to let go of their child that they've been cultivating, that they've been maintaining, that they've been doing all the things perhaps a vine dresser would do to a vineyard. And it's exactly what we see these vine dressers doing. They have a difficult time giving away the fruit of the vineyard. They did not want anyone to reap the benefits of this vineyard but themselves. And what does it say they do? The text says that they took the servants, that they beat one, that they killed the other, and they stoned another. They don't stop there. The landowner sends more out into the vineyard, to the vine dressers. The landowner sends more servants out into the vineyard. What does it say that they do? It says that the vine dressers did likewise to them. And so even though the landowner is is ready to receive the fruit of, of his vineyard, these vine dressers are refusing to allow him to receive it. These workers are refusing to allow other servants to come in and to bring to their boss, the landowner, what is rightfully his. They go so far as to kill, to stone, and they do it to whoever shows up. They beat them and stoned them and killed them, and they did likewise to whoever else was going to show up. And the text continues in verse 37. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Let's stop right there. So the landowner realized no matter how many servants that he sends into this vineyard to reap the fruit of the vines, that the vine dressers, no matter how many he sent and no matter how many servants he sent, would not allow them to gather the fruit. So what does he says he's got to do? Well, I'll send my son. Surely if I send my son who has a rightful claim to this vineyard, this inheritance, surely they will respect my son. But it says when the vine dressers saw the son, they said this is the heir. And what does it say that they did to the son? It says that they took him and they basically did exactly to him what they did to the other servants. When the vine dressers saw this son of the landowner, 
they realized this was the one that could actually take the vineyard away from their control. And in a desperate attempt to keep control over that vineyard, they sought to kill him and keep his inheritance as their own. So they took him, they cast him, and they killed him, it says. Notice one thing about the text. It says where they killed him. In verse 39 it says, So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Remember that for a later point in our lesson tonight. The text continues in verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Verse 41. They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. You see, Jesus asked a very simple question of these Pharisees and chief priests and, and, and elders of the people. Up to this point, they don't necessarily know what's going on in the parable. They don't necessarily know where Jesus is going. I don't think they do, because they wouldn't have answered this way if they had understood. Jesus asked them, what should happen to these vine dressers? What should happen to these men who, who, who do this to this landowner, who do this to the servants of the landowner, who do this to the landowner's son himself? What should happen to these vine dressers, Jesus says. And you can almost imagine how these chief priests and, and, and elders responded quickly with their answer. So many times throughout the gospel, they had no idea how to answer his questions. They were totally perplexed, totally confused. They were totally out of their realm of, of, of capability to retort. But this time, they got an answer, right? This time, they're excited about their answer. This time, they know they got the answer right. Hey, we finally know an answer to this guy's questions. And they say, he will destroy those wicked men miserably. And he will lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. You know what happens next? What happens right here and what happens next is very similar to me of what happens with the prophet Nathan back in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Where the prophet Nathan basically teaches a parable to King David, right? He tells the story of this rich man and this poor man and how this poor man was stolen from. How the rich man took what was not his and, and took it for his own. This one little lamb that the poor man had, he took it at his, as his own even though he had everything in the world. And then what does he say? He says, David, what should we do with such a man? Can you believe this is happening in your kingdom? And what does David say? The man should die for what he's done. He should restore to the poor man fourfold, right? And what does Nathan say? He says, David, you are the man. In the same way that Nathan does that and that sort of parable that he teaches in 2 Samuel 12, we see Jesus about to do the same exact same thing to the Pharisees, to the chief priests, and to the elders of the people. The same way David announced this terrible condemnation on the person who did this, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and all those people, they pronounced this horrible condemnation. That the landowner should destroy these wicked men miserably, they said. What they didn't know is that they were these wicked men who were to be destroyed miserably. And that's exactly what happens as the text continues. Jesus is about to drop the hammer, so to speak, on who these vine dressers are, who the landowner is, who the vineyard represents, and who the son is in this parable. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in your eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, 
it will grind him into powder. Jesus quotes this scripture from Psalm 118 in verse 22. He likens himself as to the stone which the builders have rejected. This stone that has been rejected by the men has become chief cornerstone, he says. This prophecy from Psalm chapter 118. Jesus is teaching a mini parable within a parable about these builders who looked at this stone and said, this is not the stone we want. This is not the stone we want for our cornerstone. We reject it. Jesus says that same stone has become the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone in those days which would then be built around it, the entire building. The entire building, the entire uh, construction would be focused and, and centered upon that one cornerstone. Jesus says, the cornerstone, I am the chief cornerstone. Even though I have been rejected, I have become the chief cornerstone of the building. And so this messianic prophecy that the Pharisees and the chief priests obviously would have understood, they begin to obviously understand the message that Jesus is preaching. More and more as the text, as Jesus explains this, you can see the chief priests beginning to understand the meaning of this parable. Because Jesus continues to say the kingdom of God was going to be taken out of their hands and given to another nation who would actually bear the fruit of the landowner. And then further explains this parable is about him in verse 44 when he's talking about this chief cornerstone. He says, listen, you can reject the cornerstone. That's your, that's your prerogative. If, if it's your choice to reject the cornerstone, you can do that. If you want to, you can try to make it on your own without a cornerstone. If, if you want to go even build a building by yourself without me as the cornerstone, you can do it. But don't be surprised when the building turns into nothing but powder. Don't be surprised when you build that building to yourself and it crashes to the ground. When you don't have the chief cornerstone, don't blame me. Because without me as the chief cornerstone, this building that you are building and that you are living under is going to be raised to the ground. Jesus tries to say to them. And the text continues, verse 45. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him as a prophet. You see, this was the moment. This was the moment that they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. This was the moment they knew exactly what Jesus was trying to preach through this parable and teach through this earthly story with a heavenly meaning. This was the moment that they realized Jesus had all the authority in the world to do the things he was doing. This was the moment that they understood the authority was given to him because he was the chief cornerstone. This was the moment that they realized the landowner had to have been God. The vineyard in the parable had to be the kingdom of Israel. The servants in the parable were the prophets who came from time to time throughout the generations. People like John the Baptist who came. This is when they realized that the son in the story was Jesus. And this is when they realized that they were the vine dressers. That they were the people who said with their own mouth that they deserved to be destroyed miserably and replaced by other vine dressers who would bring fruit. The text says that they perceived other translation says they knew he was speaking of them. Again, back to the beginning of our lesson, how hard is it to think about someone talking about you without using your name? This is what Jesus does in this parable. 
but he's doing it to convict them of their sin, to try to convince them to repent of that sin. But how do they respond? How do the Pharisees, how do the chief priests, how do the elders of the people respond to this parable? Do they say, you know what, Jesus, you are right. I, I, I am sorry for my sin. I, 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 you are the chief cornerstone. You are the Messiah. Tell me what I need to do. No. It says that they sought after him, that they basically sought to kill him, just like the vine dressers did throughout the lesson, throughout the parable. Their reaction was not to humble themselves. It was to follow through with verses 38 and 39 and kill the landowner's son. But we know because of the multitude of followers that Jesus had in verse 46, because of them, that was the only reason that they didn't seek him out, to kill him. And so tonight we've talked about the parameters of this parable. We've talked about the parable itself. And now it's time to talk about the point. You see, because the parameters, the parable... They don't mean a thing if we don't understand the point that Jesus was trying to make. You know, one of the most powerful things to me about this parable is how Jesus not only tells them that they would kill him, but he tells them how and where they would kill him. It's a little bitty moment. We've talked about it. We, know, we, we made a special point of it earlier but remember, I told you to remember where they said the landowner's son was killed. Look back up at 39. It says, So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Remember, when we look at this parable, we understand that the vineyard was the kingdom of Israel, the, the Jerusalem. And when we look at the story of the cross that takes place days later, chapters later in your Bible we see that they made Jesus carry his cross. Where? Outside the city. Just the same way that they killed the landowner's son outside of the vineyard, they killed the Son of God outside the city walls of Jerusalem at Golgotha. That's not the main point. It's just a point that we could make. What is the main point? of this parable tonight? Is it that the Pharisees are just the worst terrible people that killed Jesus? That's a point. Perhaps that's a great point. Perhaps that's a major point you could make. But I believe there's a bigger point, especially in our context as we think about ourselves tonight. To me, as I study this, as I look at this, the point of the parable is to not get so blinded with what you do that you forget whose vineyard you're working in in the first place. Do not become so blinded with what you are doing for the vineyard that you forget whose vineyard it is you're working in in the first place. Is that not what we see the Pharisees, the, the, Pharisees the, the vine dressers do in this parable? They get so sidetracked in what they had done for the vineyard, at what they had helped the vineyard do, the fruit that they had brought. They had forgotten completely whose vineyard it was. They were so completely self-absorbed with all that they had to cultivate, all that they tended to, the manicuring that they did to care for this vineyard, that they had forgotten whose vineyard it was they were working in. They had forgotten the vineyard that they were working in was simply being leased. Look at verse 1. The landowner leased it to some vine dressers. The Pharisees saw themselves, I think, as the protectors of Israel. They protected uh, the law. They protected the temple. They protected the traditions. They protected the old ways, so to speak. 
What they had forgotten over time was that it was God's law, not theirs. It was God's temple, not theirs. And when it was time to gather the fruit of the vineyard, what did they do to the landowner's servants? What did they do to the prophets and the mouthpieces of God like John the Baptist? What did they do to the son of the landowner Jesus? They killed them. All because they were there to reap the fruit of the vineyard that was rightfully the landowner's. Because they forgot it wasn't their vineyard to begin with, they refused to let anyone else inherit the fruit of the land except for themselves. But how does that relate to us tonight? I don't work in a vineyard. I'm not a Pharisee. Brethren, the vineyard that God has given us is the church. The vineyard that God has leased to us is His church. The same way that He prepared this vineyard, He, he dug a wine press, He, he planted the, the, the vines, He built a tower to look over this vineyard to make sure it was safe. He did those same things metaphorically with the church. He set it up perfectly for us. He set us up a way to worship Him rightfully. He set us up a way to follow Him day in and day out. He set us up a Savior that would continually cleanse us from our sins. He set us up with everything that we needed to care for this vineyard, to cultivate this vineyard, to tend to it, and to sustain it. His church is the vineyard that we're working on. We sing all the time, in the vineyard, in the vineyard of the Lord, right? I will work, I will pray, I will labor every day in the vineyard of the Lord. This is the vineyard that the Lord has given us. But the moment that we forget that this vineyard is not ours to do with as we please, that moment we forget that, is the moment that we become no greater than the Pharisees or chief priests in this parable. God has given us a precious vineyard. He planted it. He dug a wine press. He built a tower. He did all those different things. He did it all. And if we forget whose vineyard we labor in, we are going to become just like these Pharisees who did whatever it took to keep the power to themselves. Ben, how do we keep the power to ourselves, you might be thinking? You see, these, chief, these, these Pharisees and chief priests, are you saying they didn't do anything for, for the, the kingdom of Israel? No, I'm not saying that. They did a lot for the kingdom of Israel. They taught the truth. They, they, they protected the temple. They did everything that they needed to do. In their minds, of what was right, I don't think that the Pharisees necessarily meant to be as evil as we understand them to be tonight. But because they forgot who was in charge, who was actually in control, we see them tonight as one of the arguably greatest forces of evil in all the Bible. The text says that he was speaking of them. They knew exactly what he meant. They knew exactly what the point was, and they still went through with killing Jesus days later. Tonight, as we take a moment to look at ourselves, are we guilty of doing the same with the church? Are we guilty as doing what the vine dressers did to this vineyard? Do we think that all the good work being done in the church around us is because of us and only us? Do we refuse to listen to the servants sent by the landowner because they speak too long? Kyle, right? No, I'm just kidding. We both got on time today, right? Because they shout too loud, perhaps. Because they don't preach hard enough on the people's sins next to me. As long as they don't talk about my sins, right? Do we reject the servants of the Lord? Do we not allow others to enjoy the fruit of the vineyard? 
because we, they haven't been here as long as we have or they haven't done as much for the vineyard as we have? Do we take the inheritance and the fruit away from the one who deserves it all? You see, because Jesus was the one who bled for us. He was the one who died for us. He was the one who forgives us. Jesus is the one who gives us this vineyard in the first place. And if we act like we are the reason for the fruit of the vineyard, we're taking away the inheritance that belongs to him. Perhaps we refuse to let Jesus be the chief cornerstone in our life, just like these Pharisees. And we would rather build our own house around our own cornerstone, around ourselves and around our own greatness. If so, we deserve the same condemnation that the Pharisees and the chief priests placed upon themselves. He will destroy those wicked men miserably, they said, and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render him the fruits in their seasons tonight. As we look at this parable of Jesus, this great earthly story with a heavenly meaning, what does this mean to you tonight? Are you just like these vine dressers who did not remember whose vineyard they were working in? Perhaps you're not working in the vineyard at all. Perhaps you've never been a part of the vineyard because you've never become a Christian. Perhaps you've been taking all the credit for the things going on around you instead of giving the credit and the glory and the praise to God where it belongs. The Pharisees responded to the parable by closing their ears. The chief priests responded to the parable by then proceeding to do exactly what Jesus said that they were going to do. Days later, they were going to crucify him. That's how they responded to the parable. This week, how will you respond to the parable? Tonight, during this song, how will you respond to the parable? As together we stand.